Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're opening our Bibles this evening to the book of Ezra, the sixth chapter, Ezra chapter six. As we continue in our walk through the book of Ezra, we come to the sixth chapter this evening, and we discover a passage that instructs us with regard to the pathway upon which we can find joy. I trust your heart will be challenged as mine has been in the consideration of this passage. But right now, before we open to God's Word, let's ask the Lord to open our hearts that we might learn from it. Father, I pray tonight that you'd use your Word in our hearts that we go out from this place desiring to be people who know your blessing by experiencing joy in our daily activities. Lord, in a land that's filled with confusion and corruption, And often, a land filled with sorrow and strife, Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to be marked by joy in our daily encounters, in our private times, in our families, in our church, in every way that we'd be people who would walk before you with perfect hearts. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, most Americans are familiar with the preamble to the Declaration of Independence of the United States where we're told that we hold all these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed with their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which, of course, are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so most Americans are taught from their youth that the pursuit of happiness is one of our rights from birth. And these are wonderful words. They've been instructive words. They've been inspirational words to generations. But as we open God's Word this evening, we discover that the pursuit of happiness falls short of God's goal for our lives. God would have us to be people who pursue joy, and joy is different than happiness. God wants us to pursue joy. That fact may come as a surprise to some. After all, there are some dour Christians who tend to think that a smile on a Christian's faith may be tantamount to sin. People laugh about the Puritans. You know, the Puritans were those, they say, who were upset because somewhere, somehow, sometime, someone was enjoying themselves. And that could be a problem. But the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 that the pursuit of joy is not optional. It is not circumstantial. It is not debatable. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a command. So the pursuit of joy is not optional. It's not circumstantial. That's because Philippians 4 and verse 4 says, and again, rejoice in the Lord always rather. And when we'd like to debate about that, it says, no, and again I say, rejoice. The Bible makes it clear that God wants His people to be after the pursuit of joy. Psalm 5 and verse 11, let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Psalm 32, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are of upright heart. Luke 10 and verse 10, why should I rejoice? Because your names are written in heaven. John 15 and verse 11, these things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. The fruit of the Spirit, after all, includes joy. 1 Peter 4 and verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. 
All through the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, it seems, this theme is repeated, this goal ought to be ours to consider. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Jonathan Edwards was right when he said, an understanding of the perfections of God merely cannot be the end of creation. For he had as good not understand it, to see it, and not be at all moved by the joy of the sight. Neither can the highest end of creation be declaring God's glory to others. For the declaring of God's glory is good for nothing otherwise than to raise joy in ourselves and others at what is declared. What's Edward saying? He's saying that a passionate and joyful admiration of God is the aim of God's entire creation, of our entire existence. God has fashioned us to be people who declare His glory with joy. People who rejoice in the goodness of our God. So I ask a question this evening. How's your joy? Are you pursuing joy? Are you familiar with the believer's source of joy? Are you finding joy in your life this evening? Ezra chapter 6 is a chapter that's filled with joy. After 70 years, the temple in Ezra chapter 6 is reconstructed, it's reconsecrated, it's reopened, and the response of the children of God, look at Ezra 6 and verse 16. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And then in verse 22, from the dedication of the house to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they kept it seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful. As you study the book of Ezra in the sixth chapter, you discover that the Spirit of God has put paving stones for us in this chapter to teach us the pathway toward finding joy in our Christian experience. Finding joy in our lives. I want you to examine the paving stones along the pathway in your life this evening. Asking the question, am I finding joy in the places where God has provided it for me? Where do we find joy? Well, in Ezra chapter 6, we find these who are filled with joy found wonderful joy in seeing and knowing and understanding the providence of God. God's providential care is the underlying theme of the six chapters that we've been considering in the book of Ezra. It's especially evident in Ezra chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found in Archmetha, in the palace that's in the province of the Medes, a roll, and therein was a record thus written. In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus, the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices. Let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof three score cubits, the breadth thereof three score cubits, with three rows of great stones, a row of new timber. Let the expenses be given out of the king's house. And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, be brought unto Babylon and be restored and be brought again to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, everyone to his place, place them in the house of God. Now therefore Tetni, governor beyond the river, Shath, 
Thurboznai and your companions, the Aphrosachites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. As you review these first chapters of the book of Ezra, the hand of God becomes ever so wonderfully apparent. The providence of God jumps off the page. In Ezra chapter 1, you'll recall that Cyrus allows the Jews to return to their homeland to build this temple. In Ezra chapter 1 and verse 3, Who is there, he says, among you all of his people, his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. They had been taken captive into Babylon. And in the year 538, Cyrus, the Persian king, is allowing them to electively go back and rebuild the temple on Mount Moriah. What an occasion this must have been. When you come to chapter 2, you discover that 49,697 Jews and their servants willingly returned. Almost, almost 50,000 people returning to Jerusalem, taking that journey that would take them months as they traverse almost 900 miles, back to a homeland that some of them had never seen. The invitation had been answered and some 50,000 people are heading back, back to the place of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Back to the place of God's promises to David, back to the home of their faith. And when you come to Ezra chapter 3, they're arriving back, and as they arrive back, Ezra 3 and verse 2 says, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, he's the governor, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. I'm sorry, Jeshua is the priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, and his brethren. They builded the altar of God of Israel and burnt offerings there. And so the officials have raised the altar up. It's been built. And in verse 4, they kept also the Feast of the Tabernacles as it's written. What a time of joy is discovered in chapter 3 as that altar is rebuilt in 536 B.C. And as the work of the temple, having been begun, the reconstruction, the foundations are laid, and you remember that some are weeping and some are rejoicing as they see this temple coming back into being. But then when you come to Ezra chapter 5, or chapter 4 rather, there's a stoppage of the work. The year is 535 B.C. Trouble is round about them. An inquiry is made. Is this legal for you to be building? All kinds of political intrigue has stopped the work. And when you come to chapter 5 of the book of Ezra, God has put two prophets in the land, Haggai and Zechariah. And they're stirring the people up saying, why are you building your own houses? And you've forgotten that the purpose for our coming back here is to build the house of God. The people are challenged. Why go through all this detail? Because as we open to Ezra chapter 6, the work is ongoing and a new king is on the throne. Cyrus had given the edict that allowed the work to begin. Now Darius, the king who's followed after Cyrus, is on the throne. And Darius has a question that's been brought to him. Tetnai, who's the governor over the region of Judah, has come all the way to Darius, the king in Babylon, to ask the question, are these people allowed to be building back there in Jerusalem? After all, years have gone by and the work hasn't progressed. And as we read in this passage, they looked for a role that would contain the edict of the prior king, and they found it, verse 2. 
There was found in Archimetha, in the palace that's in the providence of the Medes, a roll, and therein was found the record. God in this passage is providentially directing the affairs of the kings, of the people. God has preserved the document whereby Cyrus said, it's okay, they can rebuild the temple. And more than that, Cyrus had said that they can use his money in the rebuilding of this temple. God providentially preserved those documents and led the people to find them. They were in the summer palace of the king in a place where the climate was perfect for the keeping of the parchment and the vellum or the leather upon which these edicts were written. And suddenly they are now found. And so the authorities also side with the authorities that have gone before. And what are the children of Israel seeing here? They're seeing the hand of God. And so the authorities have now declared not only that they should go back, but verse 7, let the work of this house of God alone and let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build the house of God in its place. Now I'm going to pause for just a minute because there are some people in the room this evening who are thinking, Pastor, I can't keep up with all the details of these Babylonian returns, and I can't blame you. But what I want you to see here is something wonderful because the hand of God is being revealed in Ezra chapter 6 in a way that just so naturally caused the people of God to rejoice. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah had prophesied as God had led him. And these are the words of Jeremiah's prophecy. This whole land, speaking of the land of Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, this whole land will be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. You see that prophecy, how specific it is? This whole land will serve the king of Babylon for how many years? For 70 years. And so as we trace through what God is doing, there's something wonderful that's happening. You see, in 606 B.C., Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know them well, they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. These, the royalty of Jerusalem, were taken all the way to Babylon. There in Babylon, they stayed faithful to their God. An edict to return is issued in 538 B.C. It's been many years since Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as teenagers were taken from their homes and escorted to Babylon. And now suddenly Cyrus is on the throne and Cyrus has made an edict. And the edict of Cyrus that could allow these 49,000 people to return came at exactly the right time. It comes 70 years after the first wave of those who have been taken captive have crossed over into Babylon. How many years did Jeremiah say? 70 years. The altar was rebuilt in 536. The temple reconstructed. It began in 536. Stopped in 535. Haggai and Zechariah get involved in 520 B.C. And as they get involved and challenge people, that challenge is interesting because the temple was destroyed in July of 586. And the temple consecration that we're going to read about in Ezra chapter 6, why that happens in 515 B.C. And so you have what you would see to be a double prophecy being fulfilled. An edict that allows, after 70 years, those who have been taken captive to return. An edict that allows the place of God that had been destroyed for these 70 years, for that place to be rebuilt. No wonder the people of God are rejoicing. They're seeing God's Word being lived out in their lives. 
And so in verse 14, note what it says. The elders of the Jews builded and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Idu. They builded and they finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus, that's the one who let them go back, and Darius, that's the king who let the building continue forward. Oh, and Artaxerxes is listed here. That's preparatory. Because Artaxerxes soon is going to allow a man by the name of Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls. All these things are interwoven ever so intricately so that we can see in this passage what Proverbs 21 so familiarly says. Proverbs 21 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And as rivers of water he turns it whithersoever he will. We're seeing providence in this passage that is going to cause God's people to rejoice. Friend, God's people always rejoice when they consider what God has done and how he weaves together things that are mysterious but irrefutably evident to those who are watching. Can we go back in time just for a little bit and make it relevant here at Colonial this evening? 1957, when God brought Pastor Heller to establish Colonial Hills Baptist Church, God brought a man here who rejoiced to find a dilapidated building and encouraged a congregation to gather. He found a dilapidated building that was owned by the cemetery committee, and they challenged him that if you can tear down that building and put up another building in this first year here, we'll allow you to use this land. And so it was that God allowed some people who, some of them still around, thank the Lord, can remember back when a tent became a church building, can remember back when heaters were were put into the tent during a cold Indiana winter, when a school bus was a Sunday school room. And as along the way a building came to be and a congregation came to assemble, they could specifically see the hand of God in a very wonderful way. In the 1970s, again, as this church family prayed, God opened His hand and allowed land to be purchased that people thought would never come into the hands of this church and buildings to be constructed that no one could have ever imagined could be ours to occupy. We don't have to go back that far, do we? We can go back to 2013. I'll never forget hosting a service here on a Sunday evening and asking people simply to come forward with an open microphone and trace the fingerprints of God through what most people around the world would consider a tragedy. And one by one, people came forward and we spent a long evening reflecting on how specifically, how intricately, how wonderfully we saw the hand of God revealed. Those Times of pondering the providence of God bring great joy. As God called our family here to Colonial a number of years ago, I'll never forget Pastor Taylor saying, you know, I want to tell you something. I prayed that you'd follow me here. I think you're an answer to prayer. We're glad to be here, but more glad than that, glad to see the hand of God in leading. To be able to know the providence of God. And what we see corporately when you see individually will spontaneously, always, unalterably cause our hearts to be filled with joy. To know that we serve a God who sees us and guides in the affairs of our lives. That's what we're seeing in Ezra chapter 6. It's the providence of God that causes the people of God to be filled with joy. And look at verse 8. Moreover, the king says, I make this decree. What you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. 
And that which they have need of, both young bullocks and rams and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the appointment of all the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day, and let it happen without fail. What an amazing God! Not only does he providentially let them go back and build the temple that had been destroyed, (laughs) but through the hand of a pagan king, he provides for their needs in journey and for their needs in ministry. And it's always that way. For the Word of God reminds us our God supplies all of our needs. God's work done God's way never lacks provision. What a blessing it was this evening to hear Michael O'Neill stand forward and share where we stand in a budget that's actually an increase from last year and hear how God has provided. There are those who scratch their heads right now all around the world and ask, how is God providing for ministry when people can't even assemble? What a remarkable God we serve. There are those in this room this evening who have come to know well Psalm 37 and verse 25. I have been young. Can you finish it with me? Now I'm old. I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And so when we find this collective gathering of God's people rejoicing in this place that is now their home once again, what do they find cause for their rejoicing? They can see the providence of God in their lives. They know of the provision of God that has fortified them. Now, pause this evening as we examine our joy factor, our joy quotient, if you will. Are you a Christian who has an abiding joy, happiness after all, can be dependent upon our circumstances. And when the other liberties are taken away from us, our happiness is impacted as well. But joy can never be taken away. There is a source of joy that is spiritual. It's deep in the heart of the believer. When we pause to reflect on God's providence and leading, and when we pause to reflect on God's goodness and providing, there's an abundant source of joy that ought to spring up in the heart of every believer. And friend, if you're not filled with that joy this evening, it may be that you need to go back in your life legacy and history and reflect on God's leading and reflect more on God's providing and with thanksgiving, allow your heart to be refreshed with the joy that the Spirit of God provides. In this passage, we see also that they're a joyful people because they have seen the protecting hand of God. Verse 11, the king says, Also I've made a decree that whatsoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house. Being set up, let him be hanged thereon. I love how careful these eastern kings are about their words. Let his house be made a dunghill for this. And that the God that hath caused his name to dwell there destroy all the kings and the people that shall put to their hand to alter, to destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. It should be done with speed as these Israelites begin to head home they find that the king himself has given a decree. And that decree of the king is going to protect them along the way. They are, after all, small in number. They're traversing a very, very large piece of real estate to get back home. And there are highwaymen along the way and challenges to face. And they've come to know that God is their refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help in trouble. Take your Bibles for a moment. Go back with me to the book of Genesis in the 15th chapter. The book of Genesis the 15th chapter. As you turn back to Genesis chapter 15, you'll need to remember that in chapter 14, Abraham 
gets involved in a battle. Remember how Lot had been taken captive by the people of Sodom? How the kings had gone to battle against kings, and in the midst of the foray, Lot and his family had been taken captive. And Abraham decides he's not going to let that happen. He assembles 318 servants that have been trained in his own home. He puts together his little band of warriors. And they go out after these well-established kings in order to bring Lot back and to bring the treasures of Sodom and Sodom's king back. Abram wins the battle. He sees God prevailing on his behalf. And then he goes home. Oh, by the way, his home was a tent. The people that he battled against lived in walled cities. Did I mention his home was a tent? He had taken 318 of his Bedouin servants, if you don't mind. He had gone on a journey to take on the kings of great cities. He'd won the battle, and he's going home to his tent. We can't even begin to understand the insecurity that would have filled the heart of Abraham. But we can understand this. The very first time in God's Word that you read these two monosyllables that mean so much to believers, fear not, it's found here in Genesis 15. After these things, after what things? After the battles, and after Abram returns to his place of great insecurity, the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and what did he say? Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield. I am thy exceeding great reward. The first fear not in all the Bible speaks to the soul of the protection that God provides. God was Abram's shield. And God is our shield as well. Our shield and our exceeding great reward. And friend, if you reflect on God's protection, God's provision, God's providence... You'll never lack joy. In fact, as we go back to Ezra, the sixth chapter, and we ask the question, what is it that made these people joyful? Well, they're rebuilding a temple, and it's going to take them some 20 years to complete this project. And when the project is completed, how, how joyful they are. We read in verse 13 of Ezra chapter 6, Then Tetni, governor on the side of the river, Shath. Bozani and their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu. They built it, they finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The rebuilding of the temple had taken a long time. But when it was done, verse 16, the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children kept the dedication of the house of God, and they kept it with joy. They found productivity in the pathway of faithfulness. Well, you might be saying tonight, we have no earthly temple that we're building. We're not even involved in a building project. I can see when a building project is done that people will be rejoicing. Well, 1 Corinthians 3 says in verse 16, Know ye not that ye, and that's plural in the King James Bible, that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He's speaking to the local church. Don't you know that while we don't build a temple with brick and mortar, 
and wood and metal that were about the building of a temple. With every addition to the building of God, there ought to be great joy. After all, Luke 17 says there's joy in the presence of the angels. I've often pondered that passage. People think it means the angels are rejoicing. That's not what it says. It says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who comes to repentance. And who is in the presence of the angels? Well, Isaiah chapter 6 tells us that the angels, as they fly before the throne of God, And so the angels witness the joy of God over sinners who come to repentance. And we, this evening, as we gather in this place in Indianapolis, Indiana, on the 25th of October in 2020, have cause for rejoicing. When the waters of the baptismal are stirred, when someone comes down an aisle and accepts Christ as Savior, our pastoral staff gathers together to pray every morning as we gather in this place to serve. As we've been praying in the last two weeks, we've had the joy of rejoicing and hearing of the salvation. Two who have come forward in service and one who trusted Christ at home. What great blessing. What what joy that springs up over the production that God gives. After all, the Apostle Paul, when he reflects on what his source of joy is, he doesn't think of building a temple. He built none. As far as we know, he was not involved in any construction projects of any churches throughout Asia Minor. But he was able to say this, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Answer, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? When we see people growing in Christ, when we see people serving the Lord, when we rejoice as we rub shoulders with those, and now literally rubbing shoulders more than hugging, but we rejoice in seeing what God is doing in lives, there's a source of joy there. And as we persevere, there's a source of joy. The house, verse 15, was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The command to rebuild, well, that had come under Cyrus. The accomplish of the rebuilding, that comes under Darius. The task takes some 20 years. They thought it would take a lot less time, but they persevered. You know what the book of James says? James says, behold, we count them happy, we count them happy which endure, James 5 and verse 11. Those who endure are happy, those who quit, there's no happiness there. No doubt of the 50,000 who left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, some had quit, some got diverted, Haggai talks about them, their focus is on building their homes and satisfying their material desires, some had quit. But others who persevered, who saw the end game and the blessing of God in their perseverance, they found great joy. And may God help us to find similar joy. And the joy of participation was theirs. The children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the children of the captivity. He's trying to include all this great group. They kept the dedication of the house of God with joy as they offered the dedication of this house of God a hundred bullocks 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 he-goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions, the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it's written in the book of Moses. Now the 122nd Psalm says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The children of Israel are now back in the house of God. And the participants who gather there are bringing their offerings. 
We look at the listing of their offerings here. A hundred bullocks, two hundred rams. And while those who were there would have considered what it meant to dedicate the first temple, when Solomon dedicated the first temple, 20,000 oxen were given in sacrifice. 120,000 sheep were given in sacrifice. The sacrifices here are ever so small in comparison to the sacrifices that Solomon was enabled to offer. Zechariah was in the crowd. Zechariah had a message for the people in the crowd. It's found in Zechariah 4 and verse 10. The message for the people in the crowd that day was this. Who hath despised the day of small things? These offerings may seem small in comparison to Solomon's, but let's not forget that our God is great. You know, we live in a generation, sadly, that has put an awful lot of attention on the size of ministry and failed to consider the power of ministry. There are a lot of believers who get excited about being in a large crowd. People have a lot of focus these days on megachurches. As one who's old enough to can rem- who can remember, back in the day when a church had 200 people, that was huge. Or 300 people, that was ginormous. I wonder how many believers who otherwise could have joy have somehow found themselves often lost in a crowd. Wouldn't you be ever so careful as a church who gathers here, who some might consider large, that we reflect upon the fact that ministry is not about numbers, it's about souls. It's not about size of properties and ownings. It's about pleasing the Lord. It's about living in obedience. And when we do that and participate together, great joy. You know what? This participation that they had was organized. It wasn't just helter-skelter. They had read what David had said in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 with regard to the courses of the priest. And they set the priest in their divisions, verse 18 says. They were participating. And as they participated, they give testimony of their joy. Are you participating? There's one final thing that I want you to see in this passage. In verse 18, they set their priest in their divisions. In verse 19, and the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites were purified together. All of them were pure. And they killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity and for their brethren, the priests, and themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of the captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord, God of Israel did eat. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful. Turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God. Can we do an inventory tonight? How's your joy? Some are pursuing happiness, too shallow a pursuit. How's your joy? Well, how can I pursue joy and know joy? Those who pursue joy will find that the pathway of joy. The pathway that brings joy to God's people is paved this way. It's paved by considerations along the way of the providence of God. Those who are on the pathway of joy see not only God's providence, but they see His provision. They thank the Lord for it. They notice the protection that God provides for His people. They reflect on productivity in the life of faith, seeing those steps of God's people toward consecration. They persevere and they participate collectively, they're not lone rangers. 
And as they stay on that pathway that God has provided, God provides something that the world can never provide. The world can provide happiness, but only God can give spirit-engendered joy. May God help us to be those who would persevere to know the blessing of His joy. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.